I'll invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Recall, I kind of left in the middle of a context last week in Philippians chapter 2. We looked at verses 1 through 8, considering the mind of Christ, uh, very much so uh, reflective of what we sang about just a few moments ago. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. And then in that chorus, stamp thine own image deep on my heart, right? That idea of give me your image, work in me the image of Christ, and the image of Christ uh, must travel through the mind of Christ. So we read, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that was last time we were together. The mind of Christ, that each would esteem other better than himself. Looking every man, not upon his own things, but rather upon the things of others. Following Christ's example, who set aside the privileges of divinity, taking upon himself the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of a man in order that he might serve us, redeem us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and to do for us what no other man could possibly do for us. And this is not only redeeming us, is it? But also setting an example which is laid out for us to follow. We talked about it a little bit this afternoon. Uh, in just that brief little devotional at the nursing home this afternoon from John 13, where Jesus says, The servant is not above his master. If I have done this to you, do this one to another. That we should place others, especially the brethren we saw last week, above ourselves in priority and in service. And last time we walked through a good number of verses, beginning with the words of Jesus himself in John. If you recall, I read a number of verses that substantiated throughout both the Gospels and the Epistles the essence of this teaching, exhorting us unto this same mind. We didn't even cover all of the verses, and yet we find that this theme of serving one another, loving one another, placing others above ourselves just pervades the Scriptures, and that in love we set others ahead of ourselves remarking at the last that this is without question the most important unity that a church can have. We might be unified around any number of other thoughts or intents or ideologies or determinations, but the most important unity that we can have is the mind of Christ, is the unity around the mind of Christ, that kind of like-mindedness, that you would be seeking my best and I would be seeking your best, and in this we find a Christ-mindedness that gives us a testimony before the world, the very essence of which makes the church distinct, unique. It is what sets us apart because we have this mind of Christ. And it's what shows the church that what we have is real. So that Jesus said in John 13, 35, a little bit farther than what I talked about this morning, or this, uh, this afternoon at the nursing home, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And this is a high calling, isn't it? It's quite a task. Exemplified by Paul already in the book, 
through his own determination that he would remain, right? He says, I want to go home, but to remain is more important for you, so I'm going to do what's best for you. Now, as we think about this manner of living, there's nothing inside of me that wants to live this way. Can I just say that? Me, personally. The, 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 the carnal part of me. There's nothing in me that wants to live this way. Nothing about this that in itself sounds alluring or desirable or interesting in any sort of a way that I would set myself aside for you. Does that mean that the Christian life is just relegated to an existence of misery? Is that, is that what this passage is calling us unto? We're, we're simply called to suffer. Called to serve in suffering. Called to set myself aside, put others ahead of me. Called to be the, the doormat for the world and for the brethren. Who would possibly want this? Why live this way? How could anyone possibly live this way in joy? How can there be a reconciliation between the joy that we're supposed to have in Christ and the delight of the Christian life and this kind of a calling? Is Christianity really just enforced misery? How is it possible that it is anything else? Well, we answer these questions in our time together today. And the passage we consider is actually quite short. You notice there, just three verses. It will not take us too long to go through the text itself, but it'll take us plenty of time to walk through the principle. As with last week, where we spent a good portion of our time simply reading the scriptures, understanding the amount of information on the topic at hand, so too we will do this evening. In truth, I could do an entire series on this, couldn't I? We could spend uh, uh, several weeks just walking through the scriptures, understanding the concepts And so we'll have a good amount of biblical information this evening regarding the nature of the believer's motivation on the connection between the call to set ourselves aside for others and the reality that the Christian life is a life of joy. The Christian life is a life of contentment and peace and satisfaction. Where do those reconcile? How do those reconcile? Under what circumstances do those reconcile? How can it be that when Jesus said in John 13, as we considered this afternoon, that, if we, that, that, that we should follow him, that we should, that we should serve one another as he is exemplified, and then he says, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. How is it that we are happy when we do these things? So we dig into the text today, and we begin with our context. Just for context, let's begin in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. The Bible says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we're called to have this mind, right? We look not on every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. The mind where we esteem other better than ourselves. And Paul calls this mind the mind of Christ and reflects how our Savior set the example, humbling himself even to the death of the cross. But then notice the results of this submission and the results of this deference in verse 9. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. Remember this morning, we were talking about faithfulness, and we went to Numbers just briefly and talked about Moses, and God spoke of why Moses was so special, and he said, 
because Moses was faithful in all of my house. And we recognize that it was the degree of faithfulness in the man Moses that brought about in him the means by which God could use him to do the things that God had called him to do. It was not his, or, his, his oratory ability. It was not his physical strength. It was not his type A personality. It was not the fact that he woke up early and went to bed late. It was, it was not these things. It was not that he had a good network of people around him. It was that he was faithful. Well, here we find this thing, that because Jesus was submissive, because Jesus humbled himself, because he assumed this mind to that end, for that reason, Christ's humility and deference, because of Christ placing us above himself, because of Christ's obedience to the will of the Father, God the Father also highly exalted him, elevated him above all others, as that word means, highly exalted giving him a name which is above every name. Christ's earthly humility brought him heavenly exaltation so that the very essence of Christ's total victory and honor is only achieved as a consequence of his humiliation and submission. His exaltation at God's hand was a result of his humiliation by his own volition. Paul goes on, verses 10 and 11. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus was absolutely deferential in his life, because Jesus was perfectly submitted to the Father in the days of his humanity, he is now perfectly exalted. And there's coming a day when, because of Christ's submission to the Father upon this earth, Christ will be ultimately and absolutely exalted above all things in heaven and in earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in its simplicity, we find the reason why we live the way we are called to live is because there's a reward for doing so. That's, that's the simple answer. Why do we do this? Why would we live this way? Why would I possibly place my brethren above myself, my brethren in front of myself? Because I know that the things in this earth are temporal, right? Because I know that they're going to go away. Because I know that one day I'm going to be six feet under, decomposing in the ground, this body. But that the things which I do for eternity are, in fact, eternal. And eternity lasts a whole lot longer than this life. Eternity is a long, long time. And so we are called to live today in the promises of tomorrow. We are called to set aside the material advantages promised to me today in this world for the promises of incalculably greater rewards in the world that is to come. And the word we use for this concept is the word faith, right? We spent months studying through Hebrews 11 on Tuesday nights last year. Let's just briefly consider the concept of faith as it's presented in that chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, the Bible says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not yet as seen, 
moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of, righteousness, of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterward receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. Noah. Noah was told of a reward. In the case of Noah and Abraham, we actually see a, a physical a physical example, right? We'll see in a moment that it was not the, the physical reward that each one received that was actually the reward that Hebrews is talking about. But we do see a physical example, a physical metaphor of this concept. Noah was told of a reward. He was told of a salvation. He was told of a judgment that was to come, and he was told of the solution to that judgment, which was without knowing this thing called rain, without knowing this idea of a flood, build an ark and get in it when I tell you to get in it. He devoted his life to this. He spent the rest of his days preaching righteousness and building an ark to the saving of his household on the basis of the promise of God. And then there came a day when faith became sight, right? There came a day when the door was shut the rain began, the fountains of the deep broke up, and they were saved. Abraham was told of a reward. He was told of an inheritance. He was told of a land. He yielded his life as it existed. He left his father's house. He left the culture he knew. He left the people he knew, and he went to a place that he did not know in order to receive by faith that which God said he had for him there. God was not beholden to keep these promises to men, was he? And yet these men believed God. They committed their lives to this persuasion. They obeyed that which God told them to do on the basis that they believed God would keep his promise. And of course, because God is faithful, he did keep his promise. And they received in temporal means the nature of their reward. They received the blessing unto which God had promised them. We skip to verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had the opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Noah received the promise of physical salvation in the life uh, of his life on that day when the Lord shut the door of the ark and the fountains of the deep were broken up. Abraham received the promise of seeing the land to which God had told him would be his and to live out his days in peace. But these were just metaphors. These were just figures of a much, much deeper promise that each one believed, of a much, much deeper reality that each one lived for, that they were willing to set aside the things on this earth with joy, for the things that God had promised in the life that is to come. That as with all righteous in every generation, having died in faith, they saw something. They heard of God's promise. They believed that the one who promised it was faithful. They could see on the horizon, past the veil of this life, the realities of that promise, and they built 
their lives, they position their expectations upon these promises. The promise of that which was to come, and they were rewarded for that. And that's faith. Verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses did the same, but in Moses' case, things are just a little bit different. Because whereas Noah, he took this step of faith, and and there was no doubt persecution in his day, and then at the end of that, he received this thing. Uh, Moses was a little bit different in that he had before him a true, a, a, a more clear and obvious difference here. On the one hand, you had all the riches of Egypt, right? A prince in Egypt, the Pharaoh's son, Pharaoh's daughter's son. And on the other hand, you had slaves. But those slaves carried with them the promise of God. So Moses yielded the promises of a life of power and a life of luxury for the promise of greater riches in the life to come. He saw the reward. He believed on the one who promised the reward. He built his life upon those promises. And it is this of which we speak this evening. This is the reward of faith. This is the reward of the humble. This is the recompense to those who will build their lives upon the foundation of the promises of Christ rather than the promises of this world. On the promises of Christ rather than the things of my flesh. On the promises of what I think I could build for me. The blessing to all who will frame their moments upon God's promises. So let's talk about the promises of God a little bit. Then we'll consider after talking about the promises of God what this means for us. The Bible speaks of eternal life, right? And the Bible speaks of eternal life within two contexts. First, that concept of eternal life being salvation. Salvation being born again, the salvation from eternal death, and so the joy of eternal life. The resurrection of the dead. A home in heaven to live eternally in the presence of the Lord. We know that that is a one-time exchange that takes place when a person puts their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When a man places his full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are are become new. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 that this concept is called being born again. Passing from death into life. But there's a second context within which eternal life is spoken of in the scriptures. And that context is that idea of rewards. Eternal rewards that accompany us into that eternal life and into the presence of the Lord. Now of the first, again, there's no ambiguity in scripture. Scripture is very clear about that born again salvation. All who have accepted Jesus Christ as their savior pass from death to life and secure for themselves by grace through faith, it is secured for them. They are justified, they are declared righteous, and thus they have a home in heaven. They rest utterly and completely under the umbrella of God's grace. None can pluck me out of the hand of my Savior, and none can pluck me out of the hand of 
my father, John 10, 28, and 29 tells me this. And this is a wonderful assurance. But in some ways, perhaps not deeply motivational. And in fact, that security, that safekeeping and grace can almost be anti-motivational in, in a manner of speaking, can't it? My safekeeping in grace means that once I'm in Christ, I can have full confidence that I'll remain in grace. I didn't do anything to earn it. I didn't do anything to get it. I can't do anything to lose it. And if I've lived up to my salvation in order to keep it, I cannot rightly be called grace, which means I don't necessarily have to live up to it. I'm instead entirely dependent upon Christ's finished work for me. And if this is the case, well, what stops me from being saved and then continuing in sin? Right? If I'm safe, kept in grace, then what stops me from saying, okay, I've got the, I've got the stamp of approval, I've got my, my, my ticket punched, now I'll just go do what I want. Yes, God's wonderful mercy and love toward me ought by every measure to compel me to serve God out of abject love, and yet there are any number of times when I might be compelled otherwise to let my guard down, as it were, because after all, I'm safe, kept in grace. Now, of course, Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 6, right? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If I was not safe, kept in grace, that, that question would be silly, right? Because you can't continue in sin that grace may abound if, you can't, if you're not safe, kept in grace. So Romans 6 would not be necessary in Scripture. But it is necessary because I am safe, kept in grace. But what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my life? Can I just do what I will? No, I can't. Of course not. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How can I live in such direct contradiction to my new nature in Christ? How could I possibly subsist in direct contradiction to my own identity? But this is also where the second concept of eternal life comes in. The scriptures make it clear that even for those who are safe, kept in grace, the manner in which we live this life matters in regard to the rewards that I carry into eternity. Paul has a wonderful discussion of this in 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is speaking of the foundation of Christ and then what we build upon it. And he says this in verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another man buildeth thereon. He's speaking about the foundation of the church of Corinth and the people that are there. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. Let every man be careful how he builds on the foundation that is laid. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Notice this carefully. Paul speaks of the foundation which is laid by Christ alone and the foundation that is Christ alone. 
That is our salvation. That is being born again. That is the foundation of the faith. If that foundation is not laid, nothing that is built matters. But then Paul says, be careful then, once the foundation is laid, which is Christ, once you are in Christ, be careful how you build upon it. Be careful what your building looks like. Take heed how you build. Take heed the materials you use, telling them that upon it can be built two classifications of materials. One set of materials that endures, the other set of materials that does not. Warning that there's coming a day when God will try the works of men. And on that day, while everyone who has the foundation laid in Jesus Christ will be saved, yet there are those who, due to the manner in which they lived their lives, due to the manner in which they built upon the foundation of Christ, due to the things which they built, will suffer great loss on the day of judgment. There's that old fairy tale about the three little pigs, right? And those three little pigs leave home and they go to forge their own living. And the first pig goes out and he gets a bunch of straw and he makes a straw house. And of course you have the big bad wolf. The big bad wolf says, little pig, little pig, let me come in. No, not by the hair of my chinny chin chin, right? And he says, then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. And he huffed. And he puffed, and he blew that house down. And then there's the next pig. And that pig gets a bunch of sticks, and he builds a house. And the wolf says, little pig, little pig, let me come in. Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. And I'll huff and I'll puff and blow And he blows the house down. And the third pig gets bricks, and he builds a house of bricks. And the wolf says, little pig, little pig, let me in. No, not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. And then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow the house down. And he huffs and he puffs and he huffs and he puffs and he huffs and he puffs, and he can't blow the house down because that house is made of something which endures, right? We might say that in some ways that nursery rhyme, that, that parable has a measure of root here in this very principle. You're building, you are building your life out of something, not just on something, but out of something. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you do not even have the foundation that is laid, right? You don't have that, and so anything that's built upon it is built upon the sand of something on this earth. If your house is built upon church attendance and your good works, thinking that your good works are going to make it right with God, then a storm's going to come, and it's going to wash out that foundation one day, and it's done, and it's over, because your good works can't make you right with God. And if your house is built upon religion and ritual, on some uh, 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 trust in some, in, in some externality of, of religious devotion and your house is built upon that, well, there's coming a day where that is going to wash out. The only foundation upon which there is any stability is the foundation of Jesus Christ alone. And once you have that foundation, what you build on it matters. And I don't exactly know all of what that means. The epistles speak of crowns. Second, we, we spoke about it just this morning in our Second Timothy survey. Paul expecting that crown for those that love Christ's appearing. 
James speaks of crowns as well. Jesus speaks of cities and authorities given to those who are faithful from Luke 19. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Just a couple of weeks ago, we referenced Paul uh, calling upon believers to seek excellence in their obedience and faith from 1 Corinthians 9, calling for them not just to run the race, but to run in such a manner as to obtain the prize, right? Every man that runneth runs all, but one receives the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And it is this concept of which we speak. We don't know all the ins and outs of what that reward that we're building unto eternal life is. But as I've said many times before, what we do know is this. Whatever it is, we want it. There's an element of our salvation that is in or out, right? John 3.18 says, He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then there's this element of our salvation, not being born again, not going to heaven or hell, but this element of reward and loss that rests upon the things that I do in this life. So that the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive of the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now let's bring all of this back to the passage at hand. I've been wandering a little bit, uh, or dancing around this topic, bringing it, let's bring it all back in. Jesus Christ took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father in its fullness. And in relation to this, Hebrews 2, 12, verse 2 tells us this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, meaning there, despising the shame means thinking little of it. He saw the shame of the cross and he said, that is such a small price to pay to be set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice the motivation here. Jesus did what he did for the joy that was set before him because Jesus believed the promise of the Father that by being obedient even unto the death of the cross, he would be highly exalted and given a name which is above every name, sitting at the right hand of the Father, henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 13. Another carnal illustration. I have a child right now who has determined that they are going to stop sucking on their fingers. It's a good thing. I'm all for that. Let's not get sick by sucking on your fingers all the time. And this child who has determined to stop sucking on their fingers had made this determination on their own, and yet I decided to up the ante. If you can stop sucking your fingers, there will be a reward in it for you. Now that child has something in front of them, a vision for something, for the joy that is set before them, they will endure this trial because they want that prize. And because they want that prize, they will despise the difficulty. They will belittle, they, they will think little of the fact that this is not going to necessarily be easy to break this habit in order to have that prize. Now that's a very, very minor level of what we're talking about here, right? But it's the same 
concept. Jesus' faith in those promises, in the future reward which would be far greater than any suffering in this life, was enough not only for him to endure the humility and the shame of the cross, but to do so willingly and more than that, joyfully. So he asked the question, why would anyone live this way? Why would I possibly invest myself in others more than myself? Why would I ever willingly, even joyfully, pour myself into you or you or you at the expense of myself? Because the promise of that which is to come. Because in doing so, I lay up treasure in heaven. Because setting aside myself and elevating my brethren pleases God and God rewards those that love him. This is not an a inherently difficult concept to understand. Parents do this, Right? I love my children. I don't always like my children. It's not always easy. Children aren't easy. Children are a lot of work. Children are a tremendous investment. Children mean I have to set myself aside. I have to not, not be so selfish as to I'm tired, I'm achy, I'm not feeling well. Well, you know what? If I'm not feeling well and my children aren't feeling well, guess who stays in bed and it's not me? Right? I get up, and I'm the one that's cleaning up the messes, and I'm the one that's still making food, and I'm the one that's making sure my children are drinking and getting fluids, and I have to because that's what my children need. Right? We've experienced this idea of setting ourselves aside for, for, for others, and there's a reward there. There's a reward to that. There's a reward to see those children grow and to have families of their own and to have grandkids and all these things. It amazes me. Grandkids do something. When, 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 when my parents became grandparents, wow, so much joy. I, I, I can't even express how much joy came into their lives when, they, when, 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 when my wife and I were able to supply for them grandkids, as we were the first ones of, of my, um, on my side to be able to supply the grandkids. Wow, what a difference. What joy. Kind of a it-was-worth-it type, type joy. <laughs> That's the idea. Paul was convinced of this. He said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul says it's worth it for me to be stoned and cast out of a city for the glory that is to come. It's worth it for me to receive all of those lashings for the glory that is to come. It's worth it for me to sit in a prison in Jerusalem for two years, to sit in house arrest in Rome for two years, for the joy that is to come for the glory that shall be revealed. And this is a faith proposition, is it not? Suffer today, yield today, put myself lower today, serve today, and the Lord will reward, reward me manyfold in the life that is to come. And if you receive this in faith, which doesn't just mean you consent to its truth, but it means you build your life upon it, right? That's what faith is. Faith is not me agreeing that the Bible's true. Whether you agree or not, the Bible's true, but that's not faith, right? Faith is me trusting it, believing it, building my life upon it. You'll find something else to be true as well if you do this. Not only will the hope of the rewards of this life compel you to obey, but you'll also find that in this obedience and this submission, in the very act of setting yourself aside for others, there is a joy and contentment that you never thought possible. And again, I, I trust that many of you have experienced this before. 
The easy way to put it from the scriptures is it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you've perhaps thought upon all those times where you've received good Christmas gifts and you've been so excited about a good Christmas gift and then you've thought of the times where you've been able to give something and you see the face just light up at the gift you've given and you say, wow, that's better than anything I've ever received. My, one of my daughters experienced this a little while ago. They received a prize and my daughter chose to give that prize to her brother. And the joy that was in her heart at doing so was far greater than the joy of having that prize. You've perhaps experienced that. Pastor, you're telling me that if I set myself aside for others, which by the way, in my heart right now says that doesn't sound like fun. But if I do it by faith, in God's name, I will be happier and more content on the other side of it? On the other side of it, yes. Yes. Pastor, you're telling me that if I yield myself to suffering by faith in God's name, I will have greater peace and greater joy in my life today? Yes, I'm telling you that, but don't worry about what I'm telling you. Yes, the Bible tells us this, right? It doesn't matter what I think. It really doesn't. What matters is what the Word of God says. Isn't that what Paul said a couple of weeks ago in Philippians 1.28? He said, And in nothing terrified of your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. The world looks at us and says, There's no way that you can live that way and be happy. There's no way you can step out in faith Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution and suffering and mockery. There's no way those Christians in Cambodia can be kicked out of their village, disowned by their family, lose their jobs, and walk into church on Sunday with joy. There's no way the world says that that's possible, but to we who are in Christ, that's the power of God, not an evident token of perdition. The world says that makes you crazy. We say that makes you crazy rightly related to God. What the world sees as self-destruction, we know as heavenly reward. And we also know it as joy and peace, don't we? Maybe you're saying, well, pastor, I don't know that. Well, here's the thing. I've said it many, many times. I hope it's ingrained well. Faith always precedes blessing. The faith must come before the blessing. This is how God operates. You will never realize the reward until you take the step of faith. It is as if God is asking you to step off a cliff and you cannot see the bottom, but God has told you that at the bottom you will be caught. And you have to decide whether or not God is true or false. And you say, well, God, if you just let me walk to the bottom and see what's at the bottom and see that, that, that I'm going to be caught, then I can go up and take the step. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. You have to take the step. And once you've taken the step, then you will receive that which I have promised. That is the whole essence of faith. That is faith. It's not faith if God shows me the bottom. God has chosen not to show me the bottom because God wants faith. He wants me to love him enough to believe that his word is true. That's what God wants of me. 
No man will ever experience the reality of any of the, of the promises of the Word of God just by knowing them. Just by knowing that these things are true will never bring about a realization of them in my life. Not even truly convincing myself that they're true will bring about their realities in my life. The only man or woman who will ever experience these rewards is the man or woman who commits themselves to the promises, builds their life upon them. This is faith. As Hebrews 11:6 6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Christian, there are rewards in heaven unlike anything your mind could possibly fathom. That's what the word of God says. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath come into the heart of man what God hath prepared for them that love him. I don't even know what that means. You don't know what that means. Nobody knows what that means because the Bible doesn't give us much insight into what that means. But on the day when our faith is made sight, I can assure you of this on the authority of God's word, it will surpass every, every one of your greatest expectations. And the only thing that you will be able to think outside of the uh, tremendous joy and satisfaction within which you're living is, why didn't I do more? What more could I have done? Well, you, th there will be perhaps a measure of regret that I did not yield more, have more faith. And then he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes, enter into the joy of our Lord, and we'll be, we'll be there. And more than that, when you submit yourself to these promises by faith, God works in your heart a joy and a contentment in this life unlike anything you could possibly produce in yourself. And this is what Paul exhorts the church unto in Philippians chapter 2 when he calls them to the mind of Christ. Yes, it is a crucified life. Yes, it is a mindset of setting myself aside, of deference. Yes, it is a, it is a context of humility. Yes, it asks you to yield your rights in this life, but always with the promise that those who do so in faith will have the blessings that God has promised of it and those blessings untold. One last thing to speak on this evening. One may ask, well, pastor, doesn't that make this whole thing kind of disingenuous? When you're telling me that my motivation for submitting to others and serving others is actually my own rewards, doesn't that actually make my motivation inherently selfish? Can't tell you how many times I've gotten this question. You're telling me that the actual motivation for serving today is rewards in heaven. So it's not like because I actually want to serve you, but because I want rewards for myself. Therefore, isn't my motivation selfish and doesn't selfishness displease God? The real reason why I'm looking upon the things of others is so that I can get rewards in heaven. So I'm really not doing it for them. I'm doing it for myself. And, and doesn't that fly directly in the face of everything that God calls us to be? My motivation for obedience is reward, is personal blessing. Well, and that's a good question, and one which I imagine has troubled many a mind throughout the years. If my only motivation to serve God is what God is going to give me for it in eternity, then it seems as though my motivation is inherently selfish. Then in a manner of speaking, the man who is the most selfish is the man who's going to want the most rewards. And so the man who is most rewarded in heaven is the man who is most selfish? So when Jesus says, lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth, he doesn't say, 
stop trying to lay up treasure, but rather change where you're laying up treasure, right? Isn't this just exchanging material greed for spiritual greed? He doesn't say, stop trying to lay up treasure. Right? He doesn't say, go sell everything and live as a pauper in this life and the next. You'd think that the most rewarded man would be a man that's in spiritual poverty in the life that is to come, right? That's the least selfish. How does this, how does this mesh? And perhaps you've wondered about this before, and maybe even in your heart you've been deeply conflicted about this not wanting to feel that motivation to lay up treasure in heaven because when you do so, you feel you're inherently selfish. You know, one of the most interesting things about my time in the jail, when I talk to people about prayer, one of the hardest things for many of the people that I interact with in the jail to do is to pray for themselves. They say, I'll pray for everyone else, but I feel like to pray for myself is selfish. And so they don't pray for themselves. They don't ask the Lord to help them to provide for them because they feel like it's selfish to do so. So they pray for others. They pray for their family. They pray for uh, those that they know. They pray for whatever else, but not for themselves because they feel like it's selfish. And you don't need to be conflicted about this because this line of reasoning doesn't really hold up to scrutiny, and that for a couple of reasons. First, because of the concept of faith, and second, because of the concept of grace. Faith and grace make this line of reasoning invalid. So we've talked through faith throughout this sermon, right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Think through this with me. Faith demands trust, right? Putting God's word above my own. By its very definition, in, by, by exercising faith, I am resting in the promises of God above myself. Trusting in God's word above that which I see with my eyes or feel with my hands or perceive even in my own emotions. I can try to say that to believe in God's word above my own senses can somehow be selfish. But the fundamental nature of faith itself demands a kind of humility that admits that I cannot in and of myself create my own happiness. And that the things that God can do are so much greater than the things that I can do for myself that I am willing to set aside even the potential of what I could do for myself for the, for the, the reality of what God can do in me and through me. And I must, in order to exercise faith, submit myself to God. This is not compatible with the nature of true selfishness. True selfishness would never set oneself aside in what he can see for the things which he cannot. True selfishness would never take out of my own hands my future and place myself in the hands of a God that I cannot see. That cannot be selfish. That must be Humble, submissive. It must be. You could say in this earth, okay, so a man who's supremely selfish, he yields the short-term gains for the long-term gains, right? He wants the long-term uh, uh, investment gains, and so he yields all of the short-term stuff. He's not going to waste his money today and until such time as all of his investments come through. And there's a man who is being, uh, perhaps you could argue, more selfish because he wants hyper success in the long run. But here's the thing. All of that's still about him, isn't it? 
It's, still, it's about his efforts today or his efforts tomorrow. It's about his re reward today or his reward tomorrow by his own hand. That's just delayed gratification. That's all that is. It's just delayed gratification. Faith is something entirely different. Because what I gain, what I glean, is on the other side of eternity. And because it's on the other side of eternity, there must be submission. I must be fully invested in the promises of the one whom I cannot see. And to this extent, I can confidently say no. To obey God, to build my life upon God's promises for the rewards of the life to come is not selfish. In that, to receive it demands humility, yieldedness, and above all things, faith. So the argument that is, it is fundamentally selfish to serve God because of the rewards he promised is naturally flawed. First, because of the very nature of faith and what it takes to have faith. But second, because of the nature of grace. We already, I already quoted it earlier. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We know that we're saved by grace through faith, right? Anyone who stands in heaven one day will not be there because of his own effort, because of his own merit, but rather he will be there as an extension of the good grace of God unto him by virtue of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I am a child of God only because I have placed my, my faith in the finished work of, the, the, of Jesus Christ, and I have been placed into Christ by God's Holy Spirit. I will stand before God one day holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight only because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But do you know that the grace of God is not just essential to salvation? It is also essential to Christian living. The only way I can get to heaven is by God's grace, that is for certain. But God's grace is not just effective in my life and to salvation. Apart from the enablement of the Spirit of God, apart from God's empowerment, apart from the fruit of the Spirit in my life, I cannot even do the work of God, right? And this being true, to lay up treasure in heaven is not about how much work I do, is it? It's really not. To lay up treasure in heaven is about the degree to which I allow God to work through me. If it is by God's grace, not only that I'm saved, but by God's grace that I can function in a manner that pleases him, then the rewards that I get one day will not be the rewards of my effort they will be the rewards of my submission, right? They will be the rewards of my humility. They will be the rewards of my faith. God rewards me not intrinsically for the amount of work I do, but more so to the degree that I am submitted, faithful, and obedient. And that's where those rewards come in. That's what those rewards are. Now, the one who is obedient, faithful, and submitted will do the work, right? The doors will open. He will walk through them. He will do the work. But it's not, it's, it, it's God that enables that. God, I didn't get saved and then God said, here's the keys to the car, go out and do your thing, right? So Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but what? Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I live 
by the faith of Christ. I live in Christ. I, don't, I, I didn't just get placed into Christ and then go for it myself. I live in Christ. Not just salvation, but day by day so that I please God and lay up treasure in heaven, not simply when I do moral things, but when I am living in faith. But perhaps the best, the most clear description of this is 1 Corinthians 15.10. I know I'm having you hop around a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says this. I love this verse. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul recognized that it was only by God's grace that he was a minister, right? Only by God's grace is he a believer. Only by God's grace is he redeemed. And because of this redemption and his love for God, because he's been redeemed, because of the grace given to him to, to, to have this ministry, he says, I'm going to work with all of my heart for God's glory. I'm going to work harder than anyone. I'm going to labor more abundantly than them all. But he says, you know what? I can't do any of that without God's grace. It's God's grace from beginning to end, isn't it? So that once again, it's not about me. It's about how much I let God work through me. And the greatest part about it is the more I let God work through me, the more I yield to him, the more he rewards me. Wow. So that's not selfish. It's certainly self-beneficial. Yeah. And why is that wrong? We need to stop being guilty about good things. God delights in giving good things to those that love him, doesn't he? Like, that's what he wants. Should my children feel guilty when I give them something, when I reward them for their efforts? No, they shouldn't. They should delight in that. Because I delight in that. That's what I want to do. God wants to give us good things. We should not feel guilty about wanting spiritual blessing, wanting spiritual rewards. But that's not selfish. It isn't carnal. And by very definition, cannot be carnal because it can only be done by grace through faith. Those are two elements that we just talked about, right? Grace and faith. So that we see that not only are we saved in the born-again sense by grace through faith, but the only time we ever please God in this life, the only time we ever walk in the Spirit in this life, the only time we're ever laying up treasure in heaven in this life is when we are living by grace through faith. We are living out the fullest realization of the eternal life that is in us. To that end, we have three applications to our time this evening. Point number one. To be Christ-minded is to be a good disciple of Jesus Christ. We'll begin with the simple and work our way toward the complex. We seek to the mind of Christ. We esteem other better than ourselves. We look every man on the things of others because to do this is to be obedient to God. Why? That's the question we asked at the beginning, right? Why would I possibly live this way? The first reason is because it makes you a good disciple of Jesus Christ. This is the easy one because it's obedient. Right? This is the easy one with my children. Why should I go make my bed? Because I told you to. Right? That's the easy one. I hope it gets deeper than that, though. Right? I hope it's, I love my parents. I, 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 I have some character. I know what's right, and I'm going to do it because I love my parents and because it's what's right. But simple, the simple answer is, you do it because you're told to, and if you don't do it, then there's going to be consequences. <laughs> We fulfill the commission which we've been given to follow Christ. 
In a manner of speaking, we could simply boil the whole passage, verses 1 through 11 in Philippians 2, down to a simple proposition of obedience versus disobedience. Why should I set myself aside for others? Why should I put others ahead of myself? Because God told you to, right? To refuse Christ-mindedness is to walk contrary to the example of our Lord and Savior. To refuse Christ-mindedness is to pursue the carnal at the expense of the spiritual. To refuse Christ-mindedness is to fall short of the calling of trusting and obeying which God has both asked and enabled among each man, woman, and child who has accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And do take note, God has not asked, but that he also enables. He has never asked anything of you that he has not and will not enable you to do. God has given us of his spirit, if you're in Christ, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, and so has given you every resource necessary to realize God's command upon your life and to live in a Christ-minded way. He has not left us comfortless. He has not commanded us to do something without telling us how to do it. He has not commanded us to do something without showing us how to do it through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So we are called, we are commissioned, we are enabled to do the work and simply boil down, you do it because God told you to. While there are any number of reasons why we don't live Christ-minded, there are no excuses which pass the test of faith and godliness, right? And if, as it perhaps should be with all of us, the simple call to do what you are told to do by the Almighty Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer of all mankind is enough, then you've already settled the issue. The rest of this has just perhaps been extra. But what is most amazing is that while this is, in a sense, all that God would and should need to do in order to compel us, when the God of all flesh tells you do something, you do it, right? That's all God should need. But the character of the God we serve is that he has not designed obedience to be an outworking of fear and compulsion. God could say, do it or get zapped. And we might do it. But instead, God says, I don't want you to serve me out of fear. I don't want you to serve me out of guilt. I want you to serve me out of love and faith. And in God's manifold grace, he's chosen to reward those who exercise that faith and commit to that love. Which brings us to point number two. So the first reason to be Christ-minded, the first reason to put others above yourselves, the first reason to set yourself aside for the sake of others because the God of the universe has commanded you to. So obey. But point number two, to be Christ-minded is also to lay up treasure in heaven. Bonus, right? Not only then is this Christ-mindedness obedience to the God of all flesh, but it's an exercise in faith, and faith pleases God, and so those things done in faith lay up reward in heaven. So like with everything in the Christian life, to do the thing that we ought to do by right, which is our reasonable service to do anyway, also affords for us eternal rewards on Judgment Day. My child ought to keep their fingers out of their mouths because dad wants them to. But it is also going to yield them a reward if they manage to do it, right? That's not a bad thing. And isn't this just like God? Doesn't this make you love God all the more? He calls us to obey him. He enables us to obey him. 
And when we submit and do what he's called us and enabled us to do, he doesn't just say, well, it's about time. He finally got on the train. He says, well done. And he rewards us for it. So Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's your reasonable service, he says. Present yourself to God because this is reasonable. This is expected. This is, this is simple. And he goes on in verse 2 to state that this means that we're not conformed to the world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And this is, Paul tells us, our reasonable service, the least we can do. But when we do it, we exercise faith, we lay up treasure in heaven, we're rewarded. Eternal rewards. Rewards that we can carry beyond the grave. Where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves cannot break through nor steal. And that can make just about anything tolerable, can't it? Because what I know that whatever I'm going through, whatever I must yield of this life in faith, not only is God worthy of it anyway, because he's God, right? But by doing it, I will be rewarded. And if this isn't enough, it gets even better. Point three. So if it's not enough for you just to obey God, or just enough that you'll be rewarded in the life that is to come, Third, to be Christ-minded will lead, will lead to true joy in this life as well. When I exercise faith in the Word of God, when I obey God, as is my reasonable service, by faith I also know that I'm laying up treasure in heaven. This assures me that my labor is not in vain in the Lord, and thus I can be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in that work. And this is what Paul taught as he contemplated the reality of the resurrection, that because we will experience the resurrection unto eternal life, and because of this eventual victory in the Lord, which no earthly circumstance, power, or authority can possibly touch, Paul exhorts of this very thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, nothing that I do by true faith in obedience for the Lord is ever wasted. You share the gospel and they slam the door in your face, not a waste. Because in eternity, the work has been done. You invest six months, a year, two years in someone, and at the end of it, they walk away seemingly unchanged, not a waste. Because you've invested that time and that effort into eternity. It's going to be waiting for you one day. And this is inevitable. But more than this, obedient faith does not just touch the life of that which is to come. When I step out in faith and I obey the word of God, it bears fruit today as well. It affects my today as well. It won't inevitably bring about good circumstances. We're not health and wealth here, right? That's not what we're about. But it will, even if it doesn't invariably affect my circumstances, it will invariably affect the peace with which I live in those circumstances. Even if it will not invariably make me happy, because happiness is an is a extension of my circumstances, and happiness is like a roller coaster. It's this and this and this and this and this, right? It will invariably give me joy, which is an abundant peace that is above the circumstances of life. So the roller coaster's here, and my spirit is here, right? And I know this because the Bible tells me it's true. And for those of you who have ever experienced the fruit of faith, you know that this is true because you've experienced this as well. 
Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Thus, when I'm walking in the Spirit, I'm obeying God by faith. The Spirit is producing in me these virtues, and we find this throughout the New Testament. Acts chapter 5, the apostles have been arrested. They've been shamed. They've been rebuked for for spreading the gospel. Verse 41 of Acts chapter 5 tells us this. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. Huh? Yeah, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Doesn't mean that the circumstances were good. But boy, were they contented. This was the product of the Spirit. It was this same Spirit that allowed Paul and Silas to sing praises unto God as they sat in the jail in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. It was the product of the Spirit that compelled Paul to write in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, as he contemplated a thorn in the flesh, he said a messenger from Satan that had buffeted him. And he says, and the Lord says unto him in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul replies, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. The world looks at that and they say, these people are self-destructive. But to those who are in Christ, that is the power of God. They have borne the fruit of the Spirit, experiencing a joy and a contentment that comes to one who is fully yielded and submitted to God and living it out in their lives. And this is no joke. This is no fantasy. It is more real than anything that you can taste or hold or see. And as we turn back to this concept of Christ-mindedness, to the idea that I'm going to place others ahead of myself, to the idea that I'm going to submit and serve and defer and humble myself. Everything in me says that if I do this, I will be less happy. Everything in me recoils at the idea of setting myself aside, of getting myself uh, uh, up when I don't want to get up, of, of doing the things that I, I, I should do when I don't want to do them, keeping myself to myself, taking care of me, serving me, holding myself close. And everything in the Word of God tells me that I will find in service to others in deference to others, in submission to others, not always happiness, but definitely joy. Not always material prosperity, but definitely contentment. And it is for me then either to believe it or not to. And if I choose to believe him, if I choose not to believe him and serve myself and care for myself, I'll likely, in a sense, be convinced I've made the right choice because I will have served myself, loved myself, done my own thing, those decisions will bring me a measure, perhaps, of self-served contentment. But what I won't understand is that by serving myself, I lost so much more than I gained, and I'll never even know it. So there have been times where my wife and I have planned something special for my children. We're going to go out and get ice cream. And then my children decide that they're going to get selfish that afternoon. They're going to start to bicker and argue, and we ask them to stop, and they don't. And they start hitting and they start fighting. And my wife and I have not told them about ice cream. And then we look at each other and we say, well, I guess we're not going to go get ice cream tonight. And my children never even know it. They don't even know what they're missing. 
They think that what they want is to fight and bicker and argue, but if only they knew what was on the other side, they never would have done it. And they'll never even know. How much more might be waiting for us? How much more peace and contentment and joy, maybe even provision, might be waiting for us on the other side of setting myself aside, putting myself lower for the sake of the brethren, as God has commanded us to do. But faith always comes before blessing. And I'll never know it, understand it, or experience it until I'm willing to step out and obey it. And this is the call this evening, that we at Legacy Baptist Church would be Christ-minded, that we would operate in the body in such a way that we are putting others ahead of ourselves, that we are serving others even at our own expense, that you and I are pouring ourselves into one another. You are pouring yourself into me, and I'm pouring myself into you. And as we do so, we please God, we lay up treasure in heaven, we produce the fruit of the Spirit, we shine forth as an incontrovertible testimony to the unbelieving world, and as we've considered throughout, this is what will bring true unity, the most important unity we could possibly have as a church. The rewards are there. The command is there. Why live this way? Three reasons, right? Because it's obedience because it lays up treasure in heaven, and because it leads to joy and contentment. And is that us this evening? Is this our church? Is this your family? Is this your life? We who are in Christ know what it is to live in his power, know what it is to feel that joy of obedience. But the world can be so alluring, can't it? Self is such a deceitful foe, isn't it? The heart is so deceptive, our enemy is so clever. Don't allow the world, the flesh, and the devil to strip you of this obedience, to strip you of its rewards, to strip you of its joy. Don't allow the world, the flesh, and the devil to strip this church of its power and its testimony in this community. Let us be a Christ-minded church. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.